0: Getting on the stage. Yes, it's good, Hosanna. God save us. God save us. Save us, save us, save us. So many ways that you can take that. Um, so many ways you can ponder that. I want to thank you on behalf of the, the Howell family for the prayers over uh, the last couple weeks for us. It is a pleasure uh, to get to see my wife. On stage this morning, feeling 1000% better than she did last Sunday. Um, All of you that have had surgery know sometimes surgery just happens and you roll right out, next thing you know, you're good. Sometimes it doesn't. And so um, just thank you so much for those prayers. Uh, And again, I want to emphasize the importance of uh, these meetings that we're having. It has been a joy uh, to just sit and listen um, to God through you guys. And so we look forward to these last couple. If you haven't signed up, please, please, please do. I can't say that enough. I can't beg you. I would love to personally single out every single one of you and invite you personally, um, but that's hard to do. And so please consider this a very personal invitation to come join us um, because it is important. Uh, God speaks through his people. He Has, he will. It's awesome to be a part of. All right. We are back in Luke today. And so I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we reside the entire time um, today. And it's it's an exciting passage. Um, We're excited to be in it with you. It's a very familiar passage to a lot of you. And so hopefully, maybe today we look at something in there that maybe you hadn't really thought about before because I've never heard this element talked about with this passage. And yet, it's really probably the focus. Of the passage. I'm going to open today with the very last words of chapter 14. So if you've got your Bible, your app, or whatever open, you're just the last sentence of chapter 14 says this Jesus is talking and he finishes up that message with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, chapter 15 opens with these words, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around Jesus. Remember, in the original text, there were no books, chapters, and verses. There were no numbers dividing things up. The thoughts were just continuous. So this was one continuous thought by Luke, and he wrote, and I quote, he who has ears let him hear, immediately followed by, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering to hear. What's that tell you? Who was listening to Jesus when he spoke? Who was it that was drawn to his words? Who were the curious? Who were the ones that were seeking the sinners, the sinners now, truth be told, that word that's used there, sinners, actually applies to every one of us. But Luke is using it in the exact same way that the Pharisees and the tax, the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes used that word, sinners. He was referring to that group of people, the tax collectors, the lower parts. Of society, those who had devoted their lives to sin and those whose life circumstances just keep them weighed down with sin. You and I, we should look at those two sentences as something very encouraging. It's a good thing. The people who need what Jesus came to offer forgiveness, grace, mercy, healing, a new life those are the ones that have been drawn into listening. So I want you to think about that in our context today. As you and I strive to share the words of Jesus every single week, as you and I share the words of Jesus through our life and through our love for those around us, do you think those words of Jesus will still attract the sinners? Because I promise you, they will. Jesus welcomed them in then, and He absolutely welcomes them in today. They will attract the exact same types of people. He, Jesus, sought them out, so should we. But that is not the thought process of the religious leaders and the scribes that we'll talk about in the parables today. And unfortunately, it's also not the, na- the same attitude of a lot of people today today claim the name of Christ for themselves. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, the religious leaders of that day had no interest in the lost at all. They only were interested in the people of The Jewish faith, and that was it. They had twisted the words of the Old Testament so that to them it meant they could not even associate with sinners, or of course they would become unclean themselves. Jesus knows this, He knows how far the religious leaders' hearts have moved from the heart of their God. Jesus knows also how far the sinners have been led astray from God. And so he shares these three parables back to back to back to let the sinners know the heart of God, while at the same time reminding the religious leaders of what matters the absolute most to their God. What brings God the greatest joy? It's an incredible passage. If you look at this passage this week, if you're here listening or you're watching this online or whatever else, and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, then this text, absolutely for you. He is specifically reaching out to you today. He is seeking you today, and he wants you to know that. He's running out to welcome you home today. If you're a believer, if you're a believer, then your goal today is to examine your own life and ask this very simple question. Am I closer to the attitude of Jesus, of God in these parables, or am I more like the scribes and the Pharisees who have absolutely no desire to seek the lost and lead them to God? All three of these parables tell the exact same story, and each one ends with the joy of God. Listen, at the end of the very first parable in verse 7, it says, "...I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner." who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Jesus is talking about the joy of God in heaven, literally God's joy. The second parable, verse 10, in the same way I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So now we add to God's joy. Who do we add to God's joy? We now have the angel's To God's joy as well. Then in verse 32, at the end of the third story, he says, we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has now been found. And in the third story, the joy then expands from God to the angels to then everyone rejoicing in the salvation of someone else. You see, if you didn't know this, these parables are all about joy. Not just any joy, but God's joy. God's joy, which he willingly offers to every one of us. Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is giving us his joy and his peace through his Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so today... We get to see the joy of the Lord. You might have sung some songs about that recently, if you were listening. The joy of the Lord come to life. I'm going to read the first two parables back to back because they're very short, very simple, and they're right in together. There's really no break. Verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. I want, you to, I want to interrupt both of these just real quick. The first one is about a shepherd. The second one's about a woman. Remember, he's talking to this group of sinners and the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Jesus just asked them to suppose that they were a shepherd. That is not something a Pharisee would ever suppose he was. That would be tasteless, to say the least, impossible to imagine being a Pharisee. And obviously, to be a woman, if you're familiar with Pharisees and there's a prayer Jesus records of a Pharisee thanking God he was not a woman, that's right. So um, yeah, Jesus is asking them to do, do very impossible things in their mind. He's humbling them just through his words. If there's he who has ears to hear, let him hear, Were they listening? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, their shepherd, and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country to go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, goes home, calls the friends, calls the neighbors, and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons Who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 coins and loses just one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the floor in the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and her neighbors together Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You see, both of these parables are about God's joy God's joy, heaven's joy. Can you, it, it, just just at one sinner, how many billions of believers are there around the world? At one sinner, every time a sinner repents, there's this joy in heaven. I want to point out something really obvious from the text that I don't want you to miss. Heaven rejoices over one sinner more than the 99 righteous persons. Did you catch that? Because if you're familiar with the words of Paul, if you're not, don't worry, I'll, I'll read them to you. Romans 3.10, he reminds us that no one is righteous. Not one. So, who are these (laughs) ninety-nine exactly? We we talk about that. Oh, Jesus left the ninety-nine to find the one. But really, who's the one? Well, it's the ninety-nine too, because they don't know Jesus either. There are no righteous people. The only righteousness I have in me is the righteousness imparted to me by my God. So, it's something for us to think about. That no one is righteous. So, did you see what Jesus did there to everyone listening? There's a small group of the people that were listening that said, oh yeah, those people. He went after those people. And Jesus is like, "Uh, actually, no, (laughs) I'm here for all of you. The crowd that was listening, most of them probably could quickly identify themselves as the lost sheep or the lost coin. And the thought of them, a sinner, a tax collector, a prostitute, a drunkard, a person that was suffering from this disease or that illness or done this in life or done that in life, the thought of someone in their life searching for them, someone rejoicing over them when they were found, that gives them hope. No one cared about these sinners in life. They just existed in society And now, someone was letting them know their true value, their true worth to the God who created them. Maybe you've heard these parables countless times. Maybe you accepted Christ a long time ago. Maybe you're going through a season in life right now where um, you've lost the hope that exists in this parable. I just want to remind you of something. Um, You were that lost sheep. You were that lost coin, and heaven rejoiced at your salvation, and God hasn't lost sight of any of that. He loves you just as much today as He did in that moment of salvation. One of the most incredible aspects of God that exists, one of His most important characteristics is this. He's Savior. Our God is Savior. That sets Him apart from every other man-made God that exists. He is by nature savior. If you listen to John MacArthur's description of it, here's what he says. He is by nature compassionate, tender-hearted, kind, patient, merciful, gracious, loving, forgiving. He is by nature a savior and he is not at all reluctant. This is a true expression of God and his character. It is God who rejoices and all the angels around him gather in his joy and all the saints in glory are added to that joy when one sinner, just one, is brought home. You cannot question that God is a Savior because even in the birth of his son, when his son came into this world, his parents were told to name him Jesus, which means he shall save his people from their Sins. The New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew name, Jehovah saves. and those verses you might have heard before, John 3, 16 and following, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our God is Savior and He is no reluctant Savior. He is a relentless Savior. He weeps over the lost. In the Old Testament, you see Him weeping through His prophets. In the New Testament, you see Him literally weeping through the eyes of His Son. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but He rejoices in the salvation of sinners. This is heaven's joy. So why does God save? Because it brings him joy. A question that some of you might have been asked, or maybe you've even asked yourself, is this. If God is a God of love, if he's a God who saves, if, if he is a God that rejoices when sinners repent, then why does he allow... dot dot dot? fill in the blank with however you might have heard that question asked. Why does he allow natural disasters? Why does he allow these mass shootings to keep happening? Why does he allow wars and crimes and disease and etc cetera, etc cetera. if you've been struck by tragedy in your life it is quite possible that you've asked one of those very questions i want to challenge you today and if you ever end up in a conversation with someone having this question asked i want to challenge you with a new question instead now if you're dealing with someone in tragedy you need to be patient and not ask this immediately you need to just love those people don't try to question their faith or anything else about it just love those people through those moments. But here's a a theological question for you to ask yourself. Why does God even allow sinners to live? Be truthful. What kind of God allows a sinner to sin and sin and sin, knowing that the wages of sin are death? You see, at any moment, God could strike down, kill every single sinner on the planet, and that would be just, and that would be absolutely, completely fair, and we all deserve it, right? What kind of God? Let's the rain fall on the just and the unjust. What kind of God lets them enjoy the beauty and the wonder of this creation? What kind of God is so patient as to demonstrate that He is by nature Savior of all men on a broad sense in that He lets sinners live? He he allows them, His saving nature allows them to be saved physically, at least temporarily, from what they deserve when they deserve it. Well, the only answer to that question is a God who is by nature a Savior. What kind of God says to Adam, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, and then allows him to live 900 years? Those aren't quite the same, are they? That's a little different. Why? Because he's a God of patience. He's a God of compassion. That is, God is our Savior. He is the Savior of all men in some sense because everyone deserves to die immediately, and yet he allows us to live physically, but He's especially the Savior of those who believe. He is their Savior spiritually, and He is their Savior for all eternity. And oh, by the way, why does God save? Why does He want lost sinners to come home? Why does He want sinners to repent and experience salvation? Well, it is for His joy. Why else would He give us His Son to redeem us through His death? our god saves all the while with those exact same words he's confronting the religious leaders who don't believe they need to be found as i said they are the 99 who don't think they've wandered off they've stayed at the homestead the whole time they don't want to do in, they don't want anything to do with those lost people they did not believe that they needed to repent. They were self-righteous. And so is Jesus saying that heaven doesn't rejoice in the same way over their lives? Yeah. Is he saying that heaven doesn't all rejoice over their striving to earn God's favor? Yeah. Yeah, he is definitely saying that. In Jesus' parables, you see, are aimed straight at the heart of all who Listen. The same thing happens each and every week as you listen to God's word. Sometimes God's word literally pierces right into your soul. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, because they're his words, not mine. And he is speaking directly to you just like he was to those people on that day in that town. The first two stories, though, they just allude to the religious leaders. He doesn't specifically call them out by name. In the third story, he actually includes them. They are the older brother in this scene, absolutely and completely. The parable of the lost son or the prodigal son, many of you have heard before, verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man. He had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided up his property between both of them. Note that real quick. He didn't just give the younger son his share. He went ahead and gave the older son as well, if you've never noticed that before. Not long after the younger son got together all that he had, he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth on wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses. He said, How many of my father's hands, servants, have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sand on his feet, bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked, what on earth is going on? Ah, but don't you see your brother, your brother has come and your father has killed the fat calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother angry, and re- was angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving you never and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me a young goat so I could even celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice not his brother, When this son of yours came home, after he squandered all of your property with prostitutes, he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. Now this third parable tells the exact same story as the first two, but this time it adds in the human element The first story, the sheep wasn't lost on purpose. I'm not a farmer. Don't claim to be. All I've ever read, though, tell me sheep are really, really stupid. Sorry if you're in 4-H and you have a sheep, but that's what they tell you. They're just not intelligent creatures, and they have zero self-defense mechanism whatsoever at all. That sheep wandered off or got separated. Whatever happened, it wasn't intentional disobedience. Yet, the shepherd left everything behind to go follow that lost sheep. The second story, the woman lost a valuable item. Now, we don't know much about this woman. We're assuming she probably wasn't very wealthy because it appears she was desperate, desperate to find this coin. She would not stop searching until she found it. The sheep, helpless. Anything could have attacked and killed that sheep if it didn't fall off a cliff all by itself first. It could do nothing. There was no way that sheep could ever find its way home again. The shepherd was required in that instance to go to him and carry him home. The coin, inanimate, dead, no life within it. It had to be restored. It had to be found in order to restore itself to its original purpose for that owner. But the third story adds a couple of new elements. It adds intentional disobedience and this word called repentance we don't know a lot about the family. All we have is what we read. So many times pastors love to elaborate on these things and add all these dynamics and elements into the story that just aren't there. This is a fictitious made up story by Jesus. So anything we add to it is just making assumptions or making it us. Let's stick to what Jesus tells us. You have a messed up family. We can tell that by looking at it. You got a father who loves his two sons and he's got two really messed up kids. Really, really messed up kids, neither of whom actually seem to love their dad at all. The youngest asks for his inheritance earlier. I'm not going to explain all the possibilities and how exactly all this worked and how he got his money and all those kinds of things. Let me give you this really brief summary. He went to his dad and he said, Dad, I wish you were dead. But since you're not, can I have my stuff now? Because I don't want to be here with you. I don't want anything to do with my brother. I don't want anything to do with his property. I want to go live my own life, the end. How would you respond, parents, if your child came to you and did that? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah? Okay. Well, don't let the door hit. You know what you you would say, right? Like, that's your response. That's my response. All right. I see how you're coming from. Your sisters are really going to enjoy all of the inheritance then. This story shows us a very specific attribute of our God. He gives us free will to do whatever we want. We can go our own way, as the song used to say. God allows us to do that. It's our choice. We are free to choose Him or not. God does not leave us, though, when we choose to walk away from Him. Remarkable, even when we walk away, God is still right here with us, waiting for us to turn back to Him, just like in the parable. That's our choice, though. He doesn't force that upon us. Now, those of you that have heard this parable taught, there are so many rich, deep teachings within this parable. It's one of the longest parables Jesus ever told, and I would argue one of the two most famous, with, of course, the Good Samaritan being the other. It is certainly worth its own independent study, and honestly, you could go two or three weeks just on this one parable alone. But what we're doing is a survey of the whole book of Luke. So what we're trying to do is find out, okay, how does this parable fit in with Luke's purpose in writing his gospel? And we need to grasp the central theme or message that Jesus is trying to convey to all of us. These three parables all follow the exact same pattern. Something was lost, something was sought out, something was found, and something was celebrated. The sheep, the coin, the son, all lost. They were all sought out, pursued, or longed for. Remember, the father doesn't chase after him, but he longingly waits for his hopeful return. The sheep, the coin are found, the lost son returns, and all three are celebrated. See, all the people listening would have at least been able to grasp the most basic meaning. If you told this story to someone that didn't know anything about God, anything about Jesus, they could grasp the most basic meaning. You could probably sit in the crowd, imagine Jesus preaching, teaching, and see the heads nodding. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that she found that. That was great. Maybe even a smile come on their face as the joy might well up within them at this father who welcomes this (laughs) just messed up son back into the family the crowd would have agreed with the ethics, right? The principles of the story. Was this the right thing to do? Of course it was. Was it moral? Yes. Was it good? Yes, of course it was. Seeking and finding the sheep? Of course that was right. That poor, helpless sheep? Oh, we got to go find him. And those of us that are on the money side? Oh, we got to find him. That's worth money. It's property. We got we to gotta find that whoever you are, whether you're the animal lover or the money, whatever, you, you get the picture everyone understood the need to find the coin pursuing that thing of a value but the third story makes things a little bit different at least for the religious leader the people might have saw themselves as that lost son those sinners in the crowd but the religious leaders oh this cut a little deeper because this young man had defiled himself. He chose to live a life of sin. He chose to become unclean. He disrespected his father, which was not something you did in the Jewish culture. They would have felt just like the older brother. How could you, Jesus, tell this story? What's wrong with this dad? That son should be rejected, kicked out forever. He's lost his position within the family. How could the father honor him and bring him back in to the family? So, Jesus looking at the religious leader, he's pointing out their hypocrisy. Oh, so you're concerned that it's the right thing to find the sheep? Okay. You're concerned about the lost coin, but not the lost son? Huh? Why are you so indifferent to souls, lost souls? How far are you from the heart of God? See, their attitude indicated their lack of care for the lost son, just like the older brother. Here in just a few weeks, we'll get to Jesus' mission statement of life, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He is save your. And who is lost? Who among us have sinned? All of us. The Son was rebellious. I've been rebellious, have you? The Son was disrespectful. You ever had that happen? He was only pursuing what he wanted selfish, evil in his actions. His behavior was even worse because he set out to do all the evil he could do. It was intentional. Things he knew were wrong. Have you ever been there? Have you ever done that in some way in your actions or in your mind? Are you lost today? Are you alone today? Have you turned your back on those that matter most like the sun? Have you run away from those that love you? And now you realize it, just like the sun. You know you need something, but you're not sure what it is. After all, there's no way God would ever take you back. There's no way that God could forgive you. How could he possibly love you after you've done this or that or the other? That's a thing that a lot of people say that prevents them from coming to Jesus. And here's what you have to tell those people, and I have to tell you today. Those thoughts, those feelings are not of God, Those feelings are lies of this world. Those are lies straight out of the mouth of Satan. God is right there waiting for you to welcome you home. He has chosen you all along. You must only choose now Him in return.
1: And all of heaven
0: is waiting on edge to celebrate you. Think of it, all of heaven when that one sinner who was lost is now found. This is the joy of our God in salvation, the joy of God in recovering that which was lost. Why did heaven celebrate at each of these stories? One word, repentance, repentance, the repentance of sinners. We see actual repentance in the actions of his son. God does not force this upon the boy. The boy comes to it on his own. I have sinned against heaven and against you, Father. We must realize our need for God. We must realize how much he loves us. We must realize what he did in dying for us and our sins, dying so that we could return freely to him. We must Repent. In the New Testament, John the Baptist kicks it off by preparing the way for Jesus, by telling people to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus echoed the same thing repent and believe. The example of the prodigal son shows us the response of the heavenly father when we repent. The church itself was birthed on the day of Pentecost at the words of Peter. The people listening were cut to the heart by what he had said. When they realized who Jesus was and what he did for them, And what they did to him, they were cut to the heart, and he calls them to do what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what on earth does it mean to repent? It's something people don't like to do in this world today. Greek root word, metanoia, not a big complex word. It simply means to change your mind, to head off in a new direction, to change your mind about something. It has to do with the way you think about things. You've been thinking one way, but now you've had a change of mind and you think the opposite way, God's way. That is repentance, the changing of the mind, to head in a new direction. God draws us near to believe and then he calls us to repent. So do you believe? Have you repented? Have you been baptized? As Peter calls us to be, have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? If not, then when will you? Because if you haven't, if you have accepted Jesus, if you have repented and been baptized, that is awesome. So the follow-up question is, how important is the recoveries of lost souls in my life? Is it a minor, insignificant thing? Maybe you get really excited if you see someone come forward, you see somebody get baptized, like, that's awesome that they accepted Jesus. Okay. But is it so important to you that you get involved with the process, that person that walks up the aisle, is someone that you have been witnessing to? Do you find incredible joy, satisfaction, fulfillment, pleasure in the knowledge that a sinner has been found and restored? You see, here's the thing, if all of heaven, including our heavenly Father, rejoice every time, shouldn't it be our highest joy as well? You see, God's calling each of us first to Him to repent of our sins and to believe in Jesus, but once we've done that, once we are His, imagine the joy that is available to you in your life, the God-given joy that you can share with your heavenly Father as you see Him with others coming to him? Are you searching for that lost sheep? Are you tearing your house apart looking for that lost coin? Are you wandering up and down the neighborhood sitting on your front porch waiting for that lost sinner to come home? You see, you and I have an active role to play in this process. And when we do, all of heaven will rejoice. Your life will be full of the joy of God. He promises that. And this place will not house all of those because our family will grow like crazy. Did you know you were in the story of the prodigal son and you weren't the son? (laughs) We're called to be the father on this earth to reach out, to long for, to search for those that are dying, those sinners around us and lead them to Jesus. There's so many elements to these parables. Where do you belong? Where do you fit in? If you need to respond today, please don't hesitate. If you need prayer today, please don't hesitate. You know what? You can be a believer and still need to repent. Did you know that? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God daily. So repentance should just be part of who we are daily before our God. Don't hesitate to come forward. It can be just between you and him. That's just fine. He knows. But don't miss this moment. And if you haven't started already, start the search. Who's the lost sheep in your life? Who's the lost coin in your life? Who's the prodigal in your life? Someone that you knew that is strayed away. Who are those people? And how can you start reaching today? out to each of them. Father God, these stories, while so simple in nature that literally anyone could understand them, anyone could find value in these stories. But Father, when we get to the the spiritual side, when we get to the you part of it, and we introduce Jesus and his heavenly Father into the equation, and we realize, Father, these stories are about your joy and where you find joy. What makes God happy? (laughs) A lost sinner repenting and coming home. If we want to make God happy, well, first thing we can do is repent and accept His Son as our Lord and Savior. And then we can spend our lives rejoicing right alongside of you, not out of obligation, but Father, because it brings us joy, because we have a heart for the lost, we share Your heart for the lost. We see lost and dying people all around us. And instead of just seeing them, now we begin approaching them. We begin loving them. We begin sharing your words with them so that those lost souls no longer are lost. Father, they are found by you. They are loved by you. And we get to express your love to them first person, firsthand, directly in their lives. We don't know their story. We don't know what's happened in their life to get them to the point that they are. But Father, we know what you've done in us. And we know you can do the same thing in each and every one of them. Father, allow the believers to be challenged today. If we need to repent, repent. To come before God, confess our sins before you. For you forgive them instantaneously. Your blood covered all our sins. But Father, give us that burden, that heart to seek and save the lost. Fill this place with sinners who have come home to their Heavenly Father.